What's up, horror nerds? I'm Elizabeth Irwin. I'm Dawn Keatley. And welcome to the Blood Curdling Book Club. Dawn is an English professor, and I'm a librarian, and together we rant and rave over dark and disturbing popular fiction. This week's hair-raising read is 2013's Somerville by D.T. Neal. This novella follows three friends who begin the story planning to die for some expensive brandy bottles they believe are sitting at the bottom of a South Carolina river. When they encounter a hitchhiker who they decide to offer a ride, a series of events are put into motion that leaves no one unscathed. Part Southern Gothic and part eco-horror, this novella takes some big swings, but do they pay off? On this podcast, we talk blood, guts, and spoilers, so listener discretion is advised. So this was an interesting one. <laughs> and I'm dying to hear your thoughts about it. Yes. And I I can uh, tell our listeners that it sounds like we're going to have differing opinions on this one. And I'm the one responsible for choosing it after I read it. And I'm going to, I think I'll, I'll have some critical things to say about it in particular areas. But generally, I'm giving a recommendation for this one for Somerville, and I'm planning on reading more of D.T. Neal's fiction, including Relic, uh, which I think is a more recent novel, and I think is the same sort of hybrid of perhaps gothic and eco-horror only underwater. So people might want to look out for that one too. But for now, Somerville, and I liked it, Liz. (laughs) So my take is not as positive, I don't think, but I do have two caveats for that. The first is that the eco-gothic as a subgenre is one that I am absolutely not so well read in. So it's entirely possible that a lot of the nuance and engagement with other texts that I think this novella is doing probably went completely over my head. And the second thing is I have to say that I love the writing. The writing itself is evocative and it's just beautiful. And I would 1000% read other things by this author. It's just that this particular novella didn't land for me as a horror product. I didn't feel like it did enough dread building to where I became invested in it as a horror property. Mm -hmm even while I appreciated the writing. That is interesting. So yeah, let's let's start with the things we weren't so crazy about and move on to the things we did like. And I agree with you about the writing. I think, well, with some caveats, that's actually where some of my caveats lie. But but generally, I think the, the writing is good. So you don't think the dread was built up enough? I mean, it's it's short. It's only 95 pages. So it does feel like things happen pretty quickly at some point. But I actually thought the horror was built up to to some degree. Um, I guess I see your point. I mean, finally, the sort of horror antagonists here, right, are, are bees and vines and flowers that shroud this kind of ruined and abandoned town of Somerville. And I think there's some build up to that in that as the characters are driving to Somerville, you know, to find this supposed sort of 150-year-old bourbon or whiskey, you know, Neil sort of sets up the way in which the South in general is kind of overgrown with Spanish moss and kudzu and bioengineered crops. 
I thought that sort of planted the seed of dread before we actually get to this town that is like just it is like a kind of antagonistic nature waiting for them. Yeah, I like that the first few pages really does situate Somerville as a dreadful place. And that's the terminology that you use. They say like these dreadful things had come to the town. And I guess my issue was that the rest of the novella never really extrapolates to a degree that I found interesting what those dreadful things are or how they operate. And I think that could have worked if I cared one iota about any of the characters. And the fact that all of these characters are, at least to me, completely unlikable made it difficult for me to invest in what was about to happen to them. And so when these things that are designed to be sort of a building of that dread occur, it didn't land for me because these characters are just so unlikable. And in fact, the one character, Ashley, who is maybe out of the group, the most likable, she's the one that's dispatched first or has the encounter with the dreadful place occur first. And it just felt like in terms of like a narrative arc and like that building of suspense before you get to like, this is the reveal of what is about to happen as a result of this dreadful place. And I never went on that upward swing. It just sort of stayed <laughs> at like a horizontal <laughs> level for me, which again is owing to the credit of the writing that I was still curious enough to know, okay, what's actually happening here? But at no point was I ever emotionally invested. Yes. I mean, I 100% agree with that. But I think that there's a way to read that positively, actually. But first, to, to read it negatively, I mean, not only was I not invested in any of these characters, but they actually weren't developed. I mean, you yeah. can barely tell the difference between them. Their stereotypes, their cliches, they act in completely just sort of, what's the word, like unfathomable ways. Their dialogue is awful. I mean, I have to say, I do think DT, <laughs> DT Neal is a good writer, but the dialogue was often painful. Um, so character development, dialogue and even sort of plot involving characters was all bad. And normally that would make me completely write off a piece of fiction. But, you know, I think it, it is, it's the setting, it's the descriptions of nature, it's the granting of agency to nature that makes this novel work for me. That's interesting that you bring up the dialogue, though, because there were a couple of things that just jumped out at me. For example, the character used the word y'all incorrectly, <laughs> but consistently throughout the book. And as a Southerner, I was like, wait, what is happening here? And then there was also one point where I actually flipped back to the beginning of the book and thought, is this set in the 1950s and I missed it? And I'm like, no, this is modern, but the characters don't, they engage with such Southern stereotypes that are so reductive and also antiquated that it completely confused me in terms of like the timeline of when these events were supposed to be transpiring. And the fact that it is set in modern times made me very confused as to why that choice was made. Now, how exactly is y'all used incorrectly? I didn't, I didn't catch up on that. And now I did live in the South for several years and I did pick up the word y'all. Hopefully I was so, using it correctly. So I did make a note on page 91. It says, that was rude, Kyle, Savannah said, spitting blood. Y'all are no gentlemen. 
Yeah. He's singular. (laughs) We do know the difference between singular and plural. I'm just saying. Maybe that's my own issue. I don't know. But well, I got hung up on um, page 36 near the top. I mean, I I got hung up on this. Um, This is Ashley speaking. She's actually talking to the garage attendant who does a good job of being the sort of you're doomed local warning the kids off, even though they're adults. But yeah, she says, Ashley, the Duke biology student says to the garage owner or the, you know, convenience store owner, that's where those rascals are heading. I was like, who uses the word rascals? Um, well, I want to now that it's been brought back into my lexicon. <laughs> and I like that his name is Cooper DeVille, which is such a, it's actually a great name, but it's also a very like Southern sounding name. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I was just confused by some of these choices. <laughs> yeah. But especially Savannah, who really is a stereotypical Gothic Southern heroine in a lot of respects. Yeah. But not I mean, way. No, not, not in a good way. And she's a she, you know, she's a stereotype. Yeah. And there are three male characters here: Ethan, Kyle, and Josh. And Neil makes a slight effort to distinguish between them. Like I think Ethan's a lawyer and owns the car. Kyle is an accountant, and Josh dives. I mean, that's all I know about them, and that's the only distinguishing characteristics they have. Otherwise, they would—they seemed completely interchangeable. It confused me, too, at the end, because especially between Ethan and Kyle, I had to yeah. continually remind myself who was who, because they are so interchangeable. Well, I think the author forgot near the end, because, you know, Savannah is on the trip because Ethan, who owns the car, brings her along and he does so because he's kind of interested in her. Yeah. But then at the end of the novella, Kyle is the only sort of living human while Ethan and Savannah are walking off together. Now that they're both like, you know, infused with the plants at this point, they're not entirely human. And Kyle knows that. And and he's looking at Ethan and Savannah walking off together. And he says something, he thinks something to himself, like, they don't even like each other. Yeah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> those were the two that, like, Ethan invited Savannah along. He was interested in her. So it was almost like the writer forgot the difference between Kyle and Ethan, because it was Kyle that didn't like Savannah from the beginning. I mean, it feels weird to be even talking about these characters like they're actually characters because they're really not. Do you think there's any reading that explains why there's such like cardboard construction? Like, Well, yeah. I mean, I think an extremely generous reading of this novel could be that D.T. Neal isn't interested in the humans. And that's the point that this is a novel about the power of nature and the power of environment and the power of the landscape. And that that's there from the beginning. Uh, He could, you know, he could be making a point that if you take the perspective of the vines um, of the flowers of the wasps, humans are like interchangeable and they're just, biological pieces of meat. I actually like that reading and it kind of makes sense to me in terms of why the characters are so unlikable because I did find myself rooting for the bees and the vines (laughs) with the exception of Ashley because I felt like Ashley sort of straddled the line there between like deserving of it versus not. 
So yes, I like that generous reading. Let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you and like I did. about it though? Well, yeah, I was actually going to get to that sort of in relation to our conversation. I mean, if you if you look at how the the book actually opens, and I I asked DT Neal on Twitter if he sort of was consciously evoking Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House in his opening. I mean, she has a very famous opening that centers the house, Hill House. And and he starts, like, I think his first paragraph is really kind of eloquent. And it's a place where we see the good writing. Somerville slept and Somerville woke, gowned insanely in emerald, jade and malachite, velvety, slouching splendor, splendor, wrapped tight and held fast, waiting, waiting, waiting. The time was right, the seeds were ripe, not a bird sang, not a cricket chirped, just the leaves shaped like spades or hearts, like a cup half empty or half full, if there had been anyone there to see them and pass botanical judgment. So it's 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 like we start with the town and with the vines waiting, and humans are sort of an afterthought, like if there had been anyone there to see them, but there's not. Like this is a place kind of emptied of humans. So th- that's what I like about the novel, that it's the narrative is actually driven by non-human plant life and, yeah. and wasps. <laughs> yeah. I like too that that really points out the way the novella engages with other products out there, whether they be literature or film. It feels like it's referencing, or at least it's evoking certain popular cultural memories. Um, so you mentioned uh, Shirley Jackson. I think this would probably fall more on the not such great association, but I also reminded me of, oh gosh, no, oh, the Creep Show episode, uh, The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. There's that one scene where he's like literally becoming consumed by the vines. And as I was reading about Ashley in particular, as the vines sort of like started weaving around her body and like building this cocoon around her, it really reminded me of that a lot. But I did think that in Neil's case, he did a better job at 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 least showing how afraid you would be as you became like immobilized by having nature sort of take control when you're so used to being the one in control of nature, because for Ashley in particular, she really does approach nature from an intellectual standpoint. So she's in school, she's studying botany and biology and all of that good stuff. And just removing the intellectual side and making it something that's visceral and emotional that she experiences. I thought that was the best part of the novella, even if it sort of brought to mind this really horrible episode of Creepshow. Those are both such amazing points. And yeah, that Creepshow episode is based on the Stephen King story. And Stephen King actually plays Jodie Barrel in that episode, right? But that episode does sort of play that whole encounter kind of as comedy, which, you know, in my view, that is horror, not Mm -hmm. comedy. Like, and you put it perfectly, you know, when you said like, if, you know, if a human who's used to having dominion over animals, especially plant, sorry, nature, especially plants, to have that control reversed would be terrifying, not not funny. And that's actually mentioned in D.T. Neal's novel on page 65, where Ethan says, he actually sort of articulates this view of nature and the human nature relationship when he says, there's an established order of things. There is, how shall I say it, a law of nature here. 
bug does not rule man. We were given this here world as part of our dominion. And obviously, that view is overturned. Ashley seems more sympathetic, but you're totally right that as a biology or a botany student, like her job is to categorize nature, which is a form of dominion. And, you know, that gets turned around on her. It's interesting how she gets shepherded into the town because to me, she's drawn by these beautiful flowers that she can't recognize and she's never seen before. And it felt very much a nod to the Wizard of Oz where Dorothy goes into the field of flowers and is sort of brought into this space of danger because she's hypnotized by the beauty. And it seemed like that same dynamic was at play in this novella. So those are just a couple of the examples. I also thought there was a reference to uh, Gloria Naylor's Mama Day when they're talking about Somerville as an entity and being something that's on the map, but still exists in this space of the supernatural that exists in memory just as much as it exists in the physical world. So there were a lot of things that were being evoked for me as a reader, which made it fun to read the story, but again, not necessarily dread building. I love that point about The Wizard of Oz. And it's interesting what Ashley's reaction is as she's drawn to the flowers because of their beauty. She imagines a name for them, right? She like she conjures up some Latin name and she's like, this is what I'd call them. So that expresses that dominion that sort of persists until she's literally subdued. And I do, I can see the Mamaday connection too, because Somerville has been sort of fundamentally changed by natural disasters in the past, like a flood. And that's part of, yeah, the island in Mamaday is perennially sort of swept by hurricanes, I guess, that affect the, the island's history. Like for me, the obvious influence here, well, there's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is literally mentioned at the end when Kyle accuses Ethan and Savannah of being, quote, pod people. But the ruins, yes, the Scott Smith novel and then the movie that was made from it, which, and, and you know, maybe in some ways Somerville may be a little too close to that. Um, <laughs> it's kind of doing the same thing, though I think it's enough different. But in the ruins, these these kids go to a, an ancient sort of, I think it's like Mayan temple in Mexico that's covered with vines that do some of the things the vines do in Somerville. Like they move on their own, they make a kind of noise, and then they consume the humans that sort of step onto the pyramid. I'm thinking through the flowers, and I'm curious whether you saw any engagement with like themes of Christianity and the supernatural in this novel, because there were a couple of places that I specifically thought it's drawing upon sort of, or playing with, I should say, ideas of Christianity and meshing it with the supernatural. And so like an example of that would be returning back to the flowers. Uh, so Ashley says, she describes them as trumpet flowers. So the two main type of trumpet flowers that I know of are devil's trumpet flowers, which um, symbolize power or caution. And then there's also angel's trumpet flowers, which symbolize vivacity and health. I like that there's like an ambiguity there because depending upon which 
type of trumpet flower she's encountering changes the reading of whether or not it's evil or positive what happens as a result of engaging with the flowers and the vines. Try not to give away everything, but something happens to these people as a result of encountering nature. And they're not dead exactly. Well, I had no idea you were such an expert on trumpet flowers. I am not. I was reading it and I turned to my cousin who is very into gardening and I said, is there any meaning behind trumpet flowers? And she said, yes, indeed there is. Yeah, that's great. And and I do think there's some religious imagery here. I mean, I think there are three named streets still in Somerville and one of them is Temple Street. And I think at the center Temple Street, there's this um, statue with which the characters assume is human, though they can't see what the statue is or who the statue's of, but it's just covered yeah. by vines. So it's almost like it's become a kind of, you know, s- religious icon or statue that that's now devoted to the vegetal. And I think you can see the characters as being sacrificed and there is a reference, there's a reference to the Garden of Eden at the end. I, I don't know if you saw that, when when two characters are sort of, sort of walking yes. off. And there's also the focus on the bees, which in Christianity is very tied to the divine. And connect like bees and how they operate in this novella. They're very much shepherding people into this questionable Garden of Eden. And... So like, I think the trumpet flowers, the functionality of the bees is up for debate as well. Like, are they shepherding these humans into a positive experience overall or something that's negative and evil? I mean, I do come down on the side of siding with nature in this one because I don't see very much value in the the humans that we were given. And at least they're providing a service of sorts. Yeah, I mean, and that that actually raises one one question that I had that I'll be interested to see what you think. Um, I think it's Kyle, who's an accountant, actually works for a bioengineering company. It's called Fawcett Biotech. And there's some conversation early on about sort of, um, I mean, it's a little stilted, but there's some debate about the ethics of genetic engineering um, and and the, the characters pass by fields that are sort of replete with um, genetically engineered soy and something else, I think. But, you know, genetically engineered crops, like all around this this lost town of Somerville are, you know, is genetically engineered plant life. So, I mean, one of the questions that I think the novel raises is when we get to Somerville with all of this sort of, I mean, there's a nature that has agency, that does things, that that captures the characters, that does things to them. Are we supposed to believe that that's sort of nature fighting back or have humans, as we tend to do, done it to ourselves? You know, is what's going on in Somerville some sort of sort of Frankenstein-like consequence of genetic engineering. I was wondering what you thought. I thought it was a reaction to human actions because like the beginning does start by saying, you know, these dreadful things occurred. So the dreadful things that are occurring have to be man-made. And so at least my reading was what's happening in Somerville now is a sort of reclamation of some sort in response to these nebulous, dreadful things that we never really have contextualized for us. 
But I do think the conversation in the beginning is interesting too, because I, I did write down on page 25, Ashley says um, she refers to horizontal gene transfer as a threat. And it just struck me because it feels like at the end of the novel, there's also a horizontal gene transfer that occurs, right? Yeah. So you have like for Ashley, like herself, she literally lies down in a horizontal fashion and allows these seeds to sort of spring forth from inside of her. And then there's also a horizontal shift happening in terms of nature is now on the same level as being a human. Uh, because there's like a sharing and a reciprocity happening that sort of obliterates any of those ideas of, well, humans have dominion over everything. They no longer do. It's been inverted. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure it's a sharing and a reciprocity at the end. I think you're right that the relationship's been inverted. I mean, it seems to me that sort of nature is gaining control at the end. And we we finally get claims that give nature agency, like it's letting you go, it wants on page 91, it wants to get out of town. So it does seem to be an inversion. I'm just not sure because of that earlier conversation about horizontal gene transfer. I mean, on, on page 26, it sort of continues and Ashley says when she's disagreeing with genetic engineering, she says they can't predict the outcomes. They treat genes like they are linear causal chains that you can pop a gene into something and it won't have unforeseen outcomes down the line. But they're always wrong about that. And that's true. Like that idea of unforeseen consequences. I mean, I'm just wondering if we're supposed to think Somerville is one of those unforeseen consequences or if it's just nature. I mean, that's what I want to believe, that it's just, it, it is like nature itself sort of just, I don't know, fighting back in some form, not some twisted outcome of what we've done. And it's really nature, you know, unlike say Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is referenced right at the end. And then the whole idea of seeds, you know, trying to plant themselves and grow and take over, you know, that that's alien life in Invasion. But um, I think in, in this novel, we're very much in just the natural realm you know, on its own, sort of getting back at humans. See, yeah, don't, you, don't you love this now? <laughs> it's way more interesting than my first read through. I'll say that for sure. It is a good one to talk about, though, because you're making me think that now maybe the sort of stilted constructions of the characters are designed to showcase them as these like husks basically. Um, and that we like associate meaning to humans just because that's what we've always done. But in reality, there are a lot of husks walking around who, you know, all these characters, they're selfish. They don't help one another when they see each other in turmoil. Uh, they're greedy. They really don't demonstrate any qualities that would make them moral in a way. Yeah, And so it's an interesting reframing of the characters. And if I look at them that way, then there's more functionality to them that I think could possibly tie into like a horror narrative. Yeah. So you're making me come around a little bit on that. Although I still don't feel like I had any dread while I was reading it. At least now it makes a little bit more sense to me. 
Yeah, I mean, I I do agree. I didn't exactly feel dread, um, though there are some some good horror tropes, you know, like the the sort of gas station attendant who warns them. That may be it. And yeah, I love the idea of the characters as husks. I mean, again, this is a really generous reading, but yeah, maybe D.T. Neal was intentionally creating his human characters that way to show how we aren't as good as we think we are. Um, And there's, there's also the fact that they do kind of ridiculous things. And so maybe that's also intended to show like, look, humans, um, you're not as great as you think you are. Like, I just didn't understand. Well, they start shooting away at a massive wasp's nest, um, (laughs) which is, which is dumb. Um, And, you know, at, at one point they leave Ashley at the gas station for no apparent reason and then go back to get her for no apparent reason. I mean, the characters just do things without any very sort of sane causality. I did have a question about Cooper DeVille, though, that I'm hoping you can answer for me. Because all the other characters, when they're sort of impregnated with these seeds... If we use Ashley as the barometer, the idea is these characters go to a new location, they lie down, they die, and the seeds sort of come forth. But Cooper is able to engage with the bees. He has the bee land on his finger, which echoes the bee landing on Savannah's finger at the very end. And so I was curious why Cooper is still alive and living his best life, presumably, at his roadside store. Whereas these other characters, is it because Cooper was a local to Somerville? Because he makes that point, whereas the others are sort of intruders into sort of that Somerville lore. I wasn't sure. Well, I totally missed the thing about the bee. So I just assumed that Cooper was, yeah, a local, that he was entirely human. Okay. And he just knew enough about the history of Somerville to to warn people away. Because he, he very much uses the sort of moralistic human language. You know, he's the one that says Somerville is a bad place. It's wicked. God drowned it. It's like hell. Mm-hmm. So I just assumed he was kind of closer to Somerville than anyone else, but not like interwoven with the plants. But the bee thing is interesting. I just totally missed it. So maybe because I think you're probably right that he is human, that would make the most sense. In which case, maybe it's the fact that he respects nature enough to be afraid of it, that nature doesn't feel the need to attack him the way it attacks the yeah. others who sort of go in. Well, three of them go in designed to steal from the river. They want to take that thing yeah. from the river. And um, then Ashley goes in because she wants a closer look to study and sort of take some of the plants away to bring back to the university and sort of claim a new plant for herself. So there's there's some attempts there not to respect nature the way Cooper does. So maybe that's yeah. maybe that's why the the bees land on his finger the same way. And, you know, he's also, if we, if we give nature agency, which it certainly has, um, I mean, I think they're using him to some degree, though he is warning people away and they want people to come in. Yeah. I see him as serving sort of the same function as the, I can't remember what he's called now in cabin in the woods, you know, the guy who's stuck at the gas station. Yeah. Uh, Oh, the harbinger. (laughs) Um, who who warns the kids away. And interestingly, I think part of that setup is 
you have someone to warn people away because you know they're going to ignore him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the harbinger in the cabin yeah. in the woods is sort of paradoxically part of the plan to lure people in yeah. <laughs> because they get, they get to this crazy guy who's like, don't go there. You're doomed. Knowing that people are going to like humans are such that they will ignore that and go exactly where they're told not to go. And that fits with the garden of Eden reference, yes. right? Like yes. Eve was told not to do it. So of course she did. This is suddenly so much more of an interesting novella to me. <laughs> so this is good. Now I feel a little bit bad about being so critical in the beginning. So I think we're done with uh, talking about Somerville. And um, yes. I'm certainly going to recommend it. And I'm on to read Relict uh, by D.T. Neal. I think he's a very interesting writer that that is writing horror that seems to dislodge humans from their central place in the horror narrative. And I find that very interesting. Yeah, I'll definitely be reading more by him. And weirdly, I'm going to say I recommend it too, which I was not planning on when this podcast started. And I have to say, just like shout out to whoever designed the cover. The cover is beautiful. It really is beautiful. And I'd be curious what other people think about this one, because there's so many different ways that you could read it. In the meantime, you can find us both at Horror Homeroom on all things social media, and we will catch you next week or in two weeks with another episode. <laughs>